Hi, this is Dave Summers, and welcome to AMA Edgewise. Fred Kaufman is ex-vice president at LinkedIn, and currently he's an advisor for leadership development at Google. He was born in Argentina. Fred came to the United States as a graduate student where he earned his PhD in advanced economic theory at UC Berkeley. He taught management accounting and finance at MIT for six years before forming his own consulting company, Axialent, and teaching leadership workshops for corporations such as General Motors, Chrysler, Shell, Microsoft, and Citibank at its height. His company had 150 people and created and taught programs to more than 15,000 executives. Sheryl Sandberg writes about him in her book, Lean In, claiming that Fred will transform the way you live and work. And he's written a great new book entitled The Meaning Revolution, The Power of Transcendent Leadership. It's a huge honor, Fred. Uh, Welcome to AMA Edgewise. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. The website dictionary.com defines the word transcendent as, quote, going beyond ordinary limits, surpassing, exceeding, unquote. Do you find that most leaders are equipped for this type of thing? No, uh, certainly not. And that's why I wanted to write a book to inspire every leader and aspiring leaders to become equipped because that's hard work. It takes effort. It, it would be like asking Do you think most people are equipped to run a marathon? Well, yes and no, but it's a matter of training. We are equipped, but not everybody can do it. And the ones that want to do it have to develop their natural capabilities with some serious commitment to training. Fred, do you believe that transcendental leadership can survive in a bubble? And by that, I mean, does it also require an appropriately immersive and aware organizational culture in order to succeed? Absolutely, yes. But this is a question of chicken or egg. I agree with you that it cannot survive without the culture, but it can be born without the culture. And then I think the leader is the person or the team in charge of creating the culture in which this kind of leadership can then endure and spread. So it can start, it's like a fire that needs some kindling to start, but then it needs to catch on the big logs to sustain. That's a great analogy. Now, in the book, you go to significant lengths to float this concept called response-ability. Response-ability. What is response-ability, and how is it different from regular vanilla responsibility? Well, I could say who's responsible for having left the dishes undone. And that has a causal agency. Like, it was my turn to do the dishes. I didn't do them. I'm responsible. And that responsibility is its properly a type of guilt. Like, I, I, I should have done it, or I committed to do it, and I didn't do it. Now, responsibility, it's a different concept because it's being able to respond to something. So let's just say that It wasn't my turn to do the dishes, but now they are dirty in the sink. And am I responsible for that? No. Am I able to respond to that? Like if it bothers me that they're there? Yes, of course, I can wash them now. And being able to respond doesn't mean it was my fault. It just means I care about it enough that I want to do something about it. You can go from something so small as the kitchen sink to something as big as world hunger or poverty. 
Am I responsible for poverty? Definitely not. Can I do something about it? Of course. Now, what I do is probably not going to end poverty, but it's still a matter of expressing my values through my behavior. And that's what I mean by responsibility. It's the essential freedom of every human being to express his or her values through the behavior in the context that he or she finds him or herself. And this is the root of morality. It's not that you can guarantee success for anybody, but you can guarantee the opportunity to express your truth, express your ethics, express your being in the midst of situations where perhaps failure is guaranteed, like you know, trying to re- well, not reduce is not guaranteed, but trying to end world hunger. It's a guaranteed heartbreak. People have been trying that for thousands of years, but you can still engage in the activity and there's a reward in the very doing of it rather than the achieving of it. Exactly. You know, I'm struck by something else you said in the book. Obviously, people have different approaches to to addressing this, but I'm interested in yours, which is why is it that you see conflict between people as an opportunity rather than as a barrier? Yeah, let me define the type of conflict that I refer to. And that's a conflict within a context of collaboration. So, for example, if you see a soccer match, there's two teams and they're clearly in conflict, but they both agree with with rules. And they both agree in playing a game that it's supposed to pursue a larger purpose than just winning. I mean, the, the purpose of the teams is to win, but the purpose of the game is not to have one team win over the other. Maybe it's expressing the skill or testing the metal of the players or giving a good show for people who are inspired by the effort of the players and so on. You can think of many ulterior motives why people enjoy watching soccer or playing soccer. So the kind of conflict that I refer to is the conflict that exists within a cooperative or collaborative framework. Let's just take a company first inside an organization. So say that you want to invest money in a particular area, and I would like to use those funds to invest them in a different way. And we have a conflict because there's a limitation in our capital budget for what kind of investments are we going to use to improve our technology. Now, of course, we have a difference of opinion about the strategy that would be most conducive to achieve our common goal. This is not a contentious situation where we're trying to eliminate one another, but we have a strategic disagreement on the best way to reach the destination that we both agreed upon. Could be, let's just say, fulfilling the mission of our company. Now, I consider that fruitful because it reveals the private information that we have with respect to opportunities, risks, costs, and benefits. There's a reason why I believe my investment is more conducive than yours. And there's also a reason why you believe your investment would be more conducive than mine. And if we are really committed to the larger purpose, it doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong. I mean, meaning in an egoic sense, it doesn't matter you win or I win. We're, we're both trying to win the game. We're not trying to win over the other, but we're trying to achieve our mission. And then through the conflict and this apparent antagonism at the level of strategies, we're able to reveal information that is unknown to each other. And if we pull this information and we have a greater perspective, we might be able not just to choose one of these two strategies, 
but we might be able to come up with a strategy that integrates the best in them. So that's a, a hopefully enough of a sure. explanation, but I can give you a lot of examples. And even transcending, let me just say, in terms of the marketplace, mm-hmm. when two companies compete, there's no apparent ulterior motive of cooperation, even in the case of two companies that are trying to, let's say, capture market share, and it's a zero-sum game. The beneficiary of this competition is humanity. Because if the companies are competing in an ethical manner, the only way they're going to win or achieve more market share is to better serve their customers and to be more efficient, to sell by lower cost, to deliver faster, higher quality, and so on. So this kind of conflict where people abide by moral rules of respect and recognition of the rights of the other is collaborative in the larger sense of benefiting humanity. I'm curious, given the vast amount of experience you have and stories you could tell us and and just companies you worked for and executives you've helped out, I mean, can an organization outgrow its leadership team? Is that possible? For brief periods of time, but uh, it's like, can something go up and never come down? No. Everything that goes up will come down. And what I mean by come down is there's a center of gravity of a culture and a leadership team. And sooner or later, that center of gravity is going to pull the rest of the organization towards it. If the center of gravity is above the current state of the organization, it will pull it up. If the center of gravity is below, because for some reason, you know, grassroots effort or, or some external circumstance, the organization, in a sense, exceeded the leadership capacity of the team at its helm, then sooner or later it's going to come down. Mm -hmm. So it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And I unfortunately have stories of efforts that were beautiful and they were very successful that started in the middle, so to speak. But when they reached a certain level of prominence, were cut off at the knees by the leadership team or uh, other aspects of the organization. You know, it wasn't so personal, but just the, the bureaucracy or the standard procedures got in the way of innovation, and then this great effort was terminated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Fred, here at the AMA, we like to think of ourselves as having a noble cause of helping new managers, people who have just risen to the ranks of management, and people who aspire to leadership, helping them down the path with learning the new skills, the new new capabilities, the new awarenesses that it takes. What's in this book of yours for a brand-new manager or an aspiring leader? Well, I think you cannot be a good manager if you are not also a good leader. I don't think those are two separate things. It would be like saying you want to be a good baseball player and you also want to be a good batter. No, batting is something you do and you have to do well if you want to do a good baseball player. So for me, leading is going beyond the formal authority. And you could say as a manager you will start relying on formal authority. But as a leader, you have to engage people beyond the effort that they will give you because it's controllable. You need to get their discretionary effort in addition to the controllable effort. Let me put it in a way that's related to family. When I had kids, I wanted my kids to read and do their homework, especially before they played. So I I came up with this great managerial policy, which was until you finish your schoolwork, I'll take away your devices. You can't use your devices. 
And I got them to read. It was tremendously effective, and I got them to do what I wanted them to do. But then I was frustrated, and I started asking myself, why, why, why am I not happy about this? Because I saw them read, and they were, they were not interested in what they read. They were just reading because they were just waiting to get their devices or trying to get their devices. And I realized that I don't want my children to read. I want my children to want to read. Mm-hmm. And that's a completely different problem than wanting them to read. You know, I can threaten them. It would be like a thief saying, give me your money, and of course they can get my money. But if a thief tells me, give me your respect, no, no gun can extract my respect, or no money can pay. So I'll, buy, I'll buy your friendship. Like someone very rich says, how much for your friendship? Like, no. I mean, if, if it can be bought, it's not real friendship. So as a manager, you want to get what cannot be bought. You want the effort that you cannot coerce, you cannot extract, you cannot control. You want people's best judgment. You want their creativity. You want their commitment. You want them to engage because they want to not because you're paying them. That doesn't mean you don't pay them, but it's just not enough. So I think to be a good manager, you have to include this leadership component where you inspire people and you engage their internal commitment, not just the external controls. We've been speaking to Fred Kaufman. He's the author of The Meaning Revolution, The Power of Transcendent Leadership. Fred, thanks for taking uh, time out of your day to talk to us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Follow American Management Association on Twitter to learn more about upcoming free programs, the latest news, management insights, and special offers. You can follow us at A-M-A-N-E-T. That's A-M-A-N-E-T. Hope to tweet to you real soon. We take feedback very seriously here at the AMA. If you get a minute, you have some thoughts about this program or additional questions, just send an email to us at podcasts at amanet.org. 